Hello all, uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Directive Stories and uh, this is Raj and today we are joined by our CEO Wamshi with Brian Anderson. Uh, Brian is the director of uh, counseling at Brentwood School. He's the owner of Grab the Wheel Kids. He's an adjunct faculty at Texas A&M University School of Engineering. He's a key faculty at Anderson and Anderson Services. So Brian received his master's from Columbia University School of Social Work, where he served as a social worker on adult inpatient psychiatric unit at uh, St. Barnabas Hospital. So let's hear from him, uh, his, uh, his entire story and his journey towards uh, helping other children and other, um, uh, other people from the social uh, work. Over to you, Wamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Thanks again for yet another impactful episode that it is going to be. Um, today, I'm really honored uh, and joyful to continue to celebrate Black History Month at Direct Shifts. And uh, we'll continue to do this by highlighting some incredible uh, Black leaders in the healthcare space and share their stories with you all. So I'm honored um, with our special to present to you our special guest today, Brian Anderson, like Raj said, um, you know, Brian is a very known name in the space of social work and mental health. And you know, as a therapist, as an author, uh, and as somebody who has impacted millions of lives there, and as somebody who has pivoted into helping the younger generation, the kids with specific social work and mental health, uh, mental health care, he has created impact in multiple lives. Uh, he continues to write standard operating procedures and um, standard methods and author easier methods to bring the right mental health care to, to kids. I would encourage you all to go and look at grabthewheelkids.com. There is a lot of information and a lot of description about Brian's story there and what he has done so far and what he intends to achieve. So without much further ado, to all of our viewers out there, I would like to present Brian Anderson. Is our special guest today and what we'll be talking about today is his story about his journey into the mental health space and what he intends to see in the mental health space going forward and how he wishes to achieve those things um, in his future. Uh, so Brian, thank you for being here. It's an honor to have you as our second special guest as we celebrate the Black History Month. Thank you for being here. And um, I would love for you to take the next couple of minutes to tell our viewers a little bit about yourself, your background. I may not have done full justice, so please. Yeah, wow, thank you so much for the very generous uh, introduction. I'm really excited to, to be a part of this and I'm excited as I continue to learn more about uh, the work that, uh, that you were doing with Direct Shifts. Um, well, I would, I would first say that, that you know, my journey uh, has, has, has kind of, um, gone all over the place in a good way. Uh, I'm a very curious person who's very passionate about this field and I like to learn. Uh, and so as a result, um, you know, I have my various specialties, um, but, but I've really explored, um, you know, all age groups and, and, and really all uh, different populations um, within the field of uh, mental health and, and education. Um, I, I would start, I guess, by just saying that uh, the journey for me from the very beginning was a very personal one. Uh, I know that you've had my my father George as a as a guest as well, and um, you know part of uh, my journey, uh, of course, uh, begins with with him. Um, both my parents really. Uh, my mother Nancy um, also is a social worker and, and therapist. Uh, she worked uh, with with children throughout her career doing uh, school psychology at an elementary school here in Los Angeles. Uh, and so between her and uh, my father, George, uh, I really had two uh, of the best teachers uh, and clinicians that I could uh, imagine. And uh, not, not just saying that because I'm, I'm biased, it's just um, they really both have um, a special gift for, for what they do. Um, but to begin my career, it was really my, my mother that inspired me to, to do this work, um, as well as my brother, uh, my older brother, Jason. 
growing up, my mom was working with children with disabilities, uh, learning disabilities, helping them, supporting them. Uh, and my older brother uh, growing up himself has uh, a learning disability. And so I watched his journey and I watched the work that my mother was doing and I became really passionate about helping others, um, particularly passionate about helping people um, who had various struggles, whether it be disabilities, mental health, to really unlock and reach their full potential and, and live a, a good quality of life. So from an early age, I, I volunteered um, with uh, students with disabilities and that was my first passion really was, was kids and, and younger children, early childhood specifically. Uh, I would say my career really started when I had an incredible opportunity to intern um, at one of the best autism clinics in the world uh, at UCLA. Uh, it's called the UCLA Early Childhood Partial Hospitalization Program. And it is a uh, essentially a, a treatment program for young children um, with autism spectrum disorders. Um, so my classroom was usually ages three to seven. I'd say mostly it was kids between the ages of four and six who had behaviors related to autism that uh, were severe enough that it prevented them from uh, being able to participate in a, a mainstream school uh, environment. And so they were uh, in our program and we uh, worked with them for somewhere between three and five months um, to identify their behavioral needs, their academic needs, their cognitive needs, um, to work with them, uh, to develop programs to help them, that then we would train the parents uh, how to uh, supplement and we would train the teachers in whatever school they were at to supplement as well. And when that uh, work was done, we would try to place that, that child back in their school environment with uh, now some more supports. So it was there that, that I really um, got my, my beginning as a behavioral therapist, uh, having some incredible hands-on work, learning from some of the, the top researchers and, and experts in the field uh, of autism. And it was really my, my boss there, Dr. Stephanie Freeman, uh, she's a professor at UCLA, an autism researcher, uh, who really just believed in me and inspired me. Um, and when I was there, I was working with uh, young kids uh, who had uh, a lot of issues with anger, um, really aggressive behaviors. And uh, those were the kids that I most enjoyed working with. Um, I, I really welcomed the challenge, right? And uh, everything really changed for me when uh, I was at the dinner table here at uh, our house and uh, my dad, George, was, was talking about a client that he had worked with or that he was working with. And it was a, a man, uh, adult, young adult man uh, who had Asperger's. And my dad was using his own uh, wheel, um, contrasting wheel, uh, which you may or may not have, have, have featured on your uh, previous episode, um, but basically a intervention strategy that he uses with adults. And I started uh, thinking as he was talking and he started thinking and telling me that the man really succeeded, really did well um, with the program because it was structured, it was visual and it was concrete. And it told him what to do. It wasn't focused on why or how it was, here's what you can do in order to cope with your situation. And as he was talking, he, he kind of looked at me and said, Brian, do you think that this could be useful for your, uh, your kids at UCLA? And both of our heads just kind of exploded at the same time. I went into work the next day, told my boss about it. She grabbed me by the arm and she said, Brian, you're doing it. And I said, what are you talking about? I was 23 years old. She goes, uh, you're going to write a book and I'm going to help you. And we're going to do it together and we're going to publish it. And she kind of just sent me on my way. Didn't really give me an option. And I was stunned thinking, well, how am I going to do this? Um, after about six years of, of work uh, and, and a full year to pilot it in the classroom, uh, uh, from UCLA to Columbia, uh, finishing grad school and back, uh, I began writing and finally finished uh, Grab the Wheel, which actually was or is an adaptation of my father's curriculum for youth with young children. And so 
that was really sort of the, 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 the launching point of my career and my work with children. Um, from there, I, I knew that part of working with children is also working with their parents uh, and their families. And that was the area where I felt I needed some more, some more training, some more work, working with adults. So from there, I kind of detoured a little bit and I began working in uh, uh, mental health uh, in adult psychiatry, um, both in New York City, uh, as well as then mostly uh, back in Los Angeles um, at UCLA in the uh, adult psychiatric uh, partial program uh, and inpatient unit at UCLA. So uh, I sort of went kind of all around the, 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 the map as far as working with kids, you know, three years old to 83 years old. And uh, um, it gave me a nice sort of kind of balance to, to do this work. So that's in a nutshell sort of uh, where my journey has gone. And of course, all the while being really interested in emotional intelligence, really interested in the work my dad was doing with doctors, being that I worked in hospitals for the vast majority of my career uh, in healthcare. Most recently, I've, I've pivoted to a school environment, but um, that really spoke to me as well. And so I began also doing some emotional intelligence uh, coaching um, with executives, with doctors, and then most recently with uh, engineering uh, graduate students at Texas A&M. So there you go in a nutshell. That's impressive, uh, Brian. First of all, let me say thank you for sharing, us, sharing with us those details on how things have evolved and how you actually put structures to your thinking got help and really created concrete methodologies. One thing that really caught my attention was when you said, it's not about how in a broad sense, it's not about what is causing this and you know being very subjective about it, but it is actually about creating tactics that people can implement and really change the situation. Most of the times, behavioral health and mental health is considered very subjective. Whereas, you know, even the, the, the psychiatry part of mental health or even other physical health, people are thinking it is very objective. You know, you know what the situation is. You get some pills, you get some tests done, you're on a medication course or you get surgeries. It's, it's very objective. That's what most people think. Mm -hmm. But mental health, when it comes to mental health and behavioral health, there is a lot of subjectivity to it. So you clearly mentioned there doesn't need to be subjectivity to it. There can be specific tactics like, the wheel strategy and the strategies that you mentioned. And one of the, the tactics I personally want to talk about more with you is I know you co-designed a basketball training curriculum right. for the kids yeah. um, that were diagnosed with uh, autism or severe autism and help them really implement those basketball training and make sure those kids came out and actually played. I personally believe that kids are here to play, period. Kids have to play. And sports and playing is the best way to cure whatever they have to be cured for. So tell us more about how that sports training actually became one of your tactics. I'm really excited for that question. That's something I haven't gotten the chance to talk about in a long, in a long time. Uh, basketball is a passion of, of mine. It's a, a sport I grew up playing and always have played uh, and followed and watched uh, to this day. Uh, sports in general, uh, I love, and I, and I completely agree with with how you put it. Um, you know, uh, there's a there's a, a quote that's uh, you know, um, children are never more serious than when they play, and I think that kind of sums it up. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, children's games are are not games at all. You know, it's serious business because that is where all of the learning and brain development is happening, um, socially, emotionally. That is really the training ground. Play is really the training ground for uh, cognitive development in, in, in young children and really uh, in all of us, right, as we continue to, to grow. So um, having outlets for play, having opportunities for play um, really, really nurtures uh, uh, our brain development and enhances our, our social and emotional skills. Uh, it also is a great place to teach. And so that was the part that that led to um, incorporating sports into my therapy work with, uh, with young kids with autism. So I think it sort of began while we were at the, uh, at the clinic at UCLA and we had recess all the time. And I sort of unofficially became 
kind of like the sports guy. Um, we had a lot of uh, sort of, um, we had a lot of goals. We had a, a, a large treatment plan that was given to me uh, as a behavioral therapist that included reports and, and evaluations from uh, mo across multiple disciplines. We had a multidisciplinary team there. Um, so we had a occupational therapist that did an assessment, a recreational therapist that did an assessment. So there we're talking about fine motor and gross motor skills. And that was as much part of their treatment plan for the child as was learning how to count or spell or read uh, or learning how to better manage anger, um, express emotions, um, and improve social skills and, and, and communication. So uh, I took it upon myself to use sports as a way to help them practice not only their gross and fine motor uh, goals, running, jumping, skipping, moving around, catching a ball, throwing a ball, but also with the social skills part. Um, because if you can motivate someone or find something that engages them, at that point, that's really the hard part. Um, once you have someone's attention, uh, teaching is, is, is much easier and really just becomes about, um, you know, adjusting uh, accordingly. Um, but getting their attention is really the, the important part. If you have someone's attention, you can figure out how to teach them, right? So sports was really um, the way in for me to engage a lot of these kids because it put them in, in a situation where they were focusing on one thing, which was the game or the task at hand. And when I had them kind of captive in that space, I could then add in all kinds of little wrinkles that unbeknownst to them were helping them practice social and emotional skills too. If I'm going to pass the ball to you and, and throw it to you, um, I want to make sure you're looking at me and that you're ready for the pass. So I got to check out your body language. I got to see if your, your gaze is pointed at me. Uh, I got to look at your hands to see if they're up, ready to catch the ball. And if, and if they are, right, I'm going to act accordingly. I'm going to pass you the ball. If they're not, maybe I need to wait. Maybe I need to do something different. Maybe I need to use a social skill and say, uh, hey, Brian, catch, right, before I throw the ball. So the patience, the waiting, the awareness of yourself and someone else, all that happens in just passing the ball to another person. And so that's an example right there of one very small thing it's part of the game uh, that has so much as far as practicing a skill for a young child, especially a young child with autism that's working on every single bit of that, that, uh, that equation, right? Every single bit of that uh, process of holding a ball, looking at somebody and passing it to them. Uh, so that's in a nutshell kind of, the technical part of, of why uh, uh, it was useful. And then, it, you know, it was fun. It gave the kids an opportunity to do something together. It was, it's, it's fun and social activity. It's exercise. And so, um, you know, problem solving, sharing, uh, coping with emotions, all of that is a part of uh, any type of sport, especially uh, a team sport. Uh, so Absolutely. In a nutshell, that's, um, you know, kind of what we did with the basketball curriculum. Absolutely. Absolutely. I loved how you put it, uh, Brian, which is, you know, really take something that is fun without losing the fun, attach the actual teaching and therapy to it, convert it into a tactic that many people could even deploy at homes. You don't really have to be in a training center or a healthcare center. You can actually deploy this the way you explained it on how a basketball game could be converted into, without losing the fun, a social, emotional, and physical skill that they're practicing. And that could be a, you know, a tactic that can be deployed at home. Wonderful. That really shows how passionate you are about creating more tactics to help the kids versus you know, being, being on the periphery. Thank you for sharing that story. Very, very impressive. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm assuming, you know, you're in L.A., you're probably a Lakers fan. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've been a Lakers fan and you know, always commemorate the great Kobe uh, for sure. Um, and, um, you know, I've been a bigger Lakers fan now that they brought LeBron in. <laughs> so, yeah. um, absolutely. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And congratulations. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. on, uh, <laughs> 
very proud. You're very proud. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Great, great. So, um, one additional point there, uh, Brian. You also mentioned as a part of your your therapy or social work activities, you have a huge focus on training the parents as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are some of the aspects that especially when it comes to mental health with kids it's not the kid alone that is actually going through it it is the whole ecosystem that the kid is a part of that potentially has to go through with it and parents are a big portion of it so what is some of the specific aspect of the training that you deliver to the parents and how should parents actually take it and potentially implement it on an ongoing basis so that the mental health care for kids is much more accessible is much more uh, less scary than you know something that has stigma attached with it. What is the role of the parents, and what kinds of trainings do you actually give to parents? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I think of an analogy that we often would would give to parents as their child would begin the program, uh, and it's true of really any type of uh, treatment. Uh, you know we would say, you know, politely but firmly, uh, you know, this is not a car wash, right? You can't just sort of drop your kid off and, you know, they go through and they do the program and then, you know, um, the job is done. Everything is solved and washed away. Um, as far as predicting the, the sort of success or, or, uh, or, or gains or growth of the child in any type of program, um, it's always going to be correlated with the involvement of the parent. Uh, or parents or, or guardians. And so the more involved you can be in, uh, you know, any of the treatment uh, or coaching that your child is receiving, um, the better the outcomes likely to be. So that includes, you know, making sure, of course, that they have access to it, um, that they can get to their appointments, um, but also being involved, being curious, um, whether it's with a therapist or doctor, um, to, to know and understand, you know, what is, uh, the treatment, what, what kind of work is being done to observe, uh, if you have the ability to, uh, in whatever setting. And then of course, when you get home, that's where the work begins. And so we'd always remind people, I may spend a couple hours a day, you know, with your child, but you're with them, uh, around the clock. And so, the, the impact of the parents always is, is going to have the, you know, the, the, the biggest result. Um, as far as sort of general advice or, or thoughts and things related to training the parents, really, if I could sort of sum it up in one word, the word would be modeling. Modeling, mm. right? So modeling or sometimes people call it mirroring. Um, you know, we all learn from what we see around us and a child learns from what they see when they look at their caregivers. So the way that a child from birth begins to understand his or her own emotions is actually by looking at their caregiver and watching the reactions of their caregiver, right? Their caregiver will look at them and start to express their own emotions in their face and their tone of voice. Uh, The child will begin to detect that and recognize that from mom or from dad. And then when the child is upset, maybe starts crying, um, before that child has language, uh, the way that they learn what an emotion is, is by the caregiver naming that emotion. So if the child is crying and the mother says, or the father says, What's wrong? Are you sad? Oh, it looks like you're sad. The child is now hearing the word sad and matching that word with their own internal experience. That's how we learn what emotions are. The more back and forth that you have between caregiver uh, and child uh, in that sort of a way, language around emotions, responding to emotions, then the more intelligence you are building within that child's brain. Again, from a very early age, I'm talking one and two years old, children start to um, start, are able to take this feedback in, um, even before they're able to, to use language. So uh, the young children I, I spend time on or, or, or talk about in such detail because it really is amazing um, to watch 
Uh, that stage of development, so much for people who have young children or have spent time around them. So much is happening in just the course of a day uh, that you just wouldn't believe it. If you think about the, the amount of social and emotional and brain development happening uh, in early childhood, it's just, it's just remarkable. And a lot can be learned from young children that still applies uh, into adulthood and still really teaches us a lot about human beings and emotions, how we cope, how we learn, um, and sort of what we need. And so, you know, the biggest need for, uh, you know, a young child is that type of modeling from the parents, uh, and that includes behaviorally. So, um, you know, uh, monkey see, monkey do, right? Um, if you want your child to respond to stress in a certain way, then you yourself are going to need to respond to stress in that same way. Uh, your child is going to take after you, watch and observe you, and learn from how you react to things. So uh, modeling, modeling, modeling. Uh, and that means that it starts within ourselves. So for parents to um, you know, better care for their children, parents have to first care for themselves, care for themselves. So, you know, there's plenty of sayings about it. You know, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? We want to do so much for others that often we forget to take care of ourselves. Um, but I would say to parents um, to be gentle and kind to yourself. Parenting is hard. It doesn't come with a book. Um, you're not, you're not uh, bad for, for uh, having, uh, you know, difficulties or your child having difficulties. It's not a reflection on you. Um, instead to look at yourself as someone who is doing something challenging, who has a, a full life with its own stresses and, and, and difficulties. And you really need to take the time to take care of yourself if you're going to be able to take care of somebody else. So it starts really with, with the parent. And if you're able to take care of yourself, you're able to, um, pay attention and be aware of your own temperament, your own temperament. So how you are feeling emotionally um, is going to be felt by everybody around you, right? Um, just the nonverbal presence that we have in a room can be detected, you know, by other people. So with your child or at home, um, if you are stressed, if you are feeling anxious, your child will be able to sense or pick up on that. Does that mean you're not allowed to be anxious? No. Does that mean you're not allowed to be stressed? No. It just means that when you are stressed, how you handle it, how you manage your own stress, that is going to be uh, a way of teaching your child how they can manage their own anxiety and their own stress. Um, so there's just, there's just tons to, to think about and say on this topic, but uh, modeling, if you want your child to feel calm in the face of uh, something that's very scary, for example, this pandemic um, or social unrest in our in our country or in our world, um, if the parent can model, this is difficult and we're going to figure it out, or this is really difficult, this is really painful, and we're going to find a way through it, right? That's modeling calmness, that's modeling problem solving, that's modeling tolerating stress in a healthy way, it's modeling optimism. Right. So that type of modeling is, is a, I would say, the most powerful way to to guide your ch child. And that way is free. And it starts with you. It's all in your control. Right. If you are calm, if you lower your voice, if you slow yourself down, whoever you're talking to, child or adult, is likely to do the same and, and sort of match uh, your tone and your temperament. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I may have had a little bit of technical snack there, but I but I'm back. Um, that's a great point, uh, Brian. You mentioned about modeling and making sure you're actually behaving the way you want your child to behave. As a parent, you're modeling all those behaviors and you're constantly assessing those. In fact, one of my good friends, who by the way is great with kids, who always used to tell me, continues to tell me that it's not just about what you say. It's how you say that matters in a greater way sometimes. So, like you said, this does not come with a playbook. You know, this does not come with for uh, for parents out there. 
in order to ensure the younger generation, the kids' mental health is being taken care of, their emotional awareness is being mentored, grown right from the early stages, really doesn't come with a tactical playbook. You know, do this, check on this, assess this, you know, at the end of the day, do this, or at the end of the week, do this. You know, it really isn't a playbook, like you said. So what, in your opinion, should be good resources? You know, I would be very happy to understand the resources that you are, you have authored as well. But how do parents and adults really take some of the tactics and implement them in their uh, in their daily lives or you know weekly lives? And how do they assess if there are improvements that are happening because of how they are modeling those behaviors? What should they be doing in order to be more aware of uh, how they're doing it and the kind of improvement that they're actually seeing in their kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I'll, I'll bring it back to the example uh, sort of about, about basketball and about using basketball as teaching in a way. Um, it all starts with engagement and building rapport when in whatever field that you're working in whether it's business or healthcare, uh thinking about patient care and outcomes or thinking about parenting a young child uh or being a classroom teacher it's all about engagement and rapport if you have someone engaged and you have a good relationship with them anything is possible if you don't have that it's going to be really difficult for you to make uh, uh, as big of an impact as you could. So the prerequisite to everything is building rapport and being engaged. Um, so we might as well start there with that basic foundation, mm. right? Uh, we can't skip that step. Uh, a, a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning parents um, you know, might be willing to show up for the solution, um, but they've skipped over the foundation. And they may wonder, you know, why is my child not talking to me? Why is my child not listening to me? Um, I don't understand what's going on. Um, whenever you're at a loss, it's good to return to that basic building block of building rapport, of engaging, right? That's really the foundation that is going to result in your tactics being successful, right? Yep. So, okay. yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well said. I think, I think those complete awareness of those tactics, and making sure that it is resulting in the success that you actually want to see, uh, is such an important point. So, tell us more about the wheel strategy. You know, you mentioned the wheel strategy was actually used on adult patients. You modified it to really make it a custom solution to kids. What exactly is that wheel strategy and how actually did you modify it? If, if you're not sharing the secret sauce, but if you're oh, able no. to share <laughs> the majority I, of it, we would love to hear what the strategy yeah, is. Yeah, I will, I will share the secret sauce, absolutely. Um, you know, so so in order for the, the wheel tactic, uh, you know, to really be effective, um, we have to understand, you know, what, what motivates us as human beings or mm -hmm. for, for someone with their child, what motivates your child? What is your child like? What do they enjoy? What do they care about? What makes them happy? What makes them laugh, right? Um, and on the other side, what upsets them? What are they struggling with? What do they find difficult? What do they find scary, right? Um, th those are really the things, those motivators that we have to tap into in order to uh, develop change. So I'm going to need to reward or praise a child in a way that's motivating to them. Um, so that is something you need to know if you're going to use the wheel, um, because it's it's a part of um, it's a part of the lesson. It's a part of the intervention. So I can show you um, exactly uh, sort of what the wheel is and where it came from, and and I'll show you by holding up uh, just a, a page from my book here. Um, what you see here on the left-hand side, the Anderson and Anderson wheel is the wheel that my father created. You know, yeah. this is what we use with uh, adults to uh, help develop skills for managing stress and interactions with other people. And so I obviously grew up learning this from my father and began to work with clients and, and using it myself. Uh, across different settings. So these are the skills on this wheel 
um, assertiveness, active listening, focusing, seeking compromise, rephrasing honest feedback, expressing feelings and stating needs. Um, these here are the skills that we want people to use when they have a conflict, when they have a problem, right? Use one of those skills and it's going to be more likely to lead to a positive outcome for you and the other person. What I did is I took this wheel here and I turned it in and I said to myself, how would I express this to a five-year-old? How would I teach mm -hmm. a five-year-old, right? How would I teach a five-year-old how to use these skills? I have to adjust the language and I have to make it accessible. So we took assertiveness, excuse me. We took assertiveness and stating needs and we turned that into strong words, right? We took active listening and focusing and we turned that into listening. We took expressing feelings and honest feedback and we turned that into say how I feel. And we took seeking compromise and rephrasing and we turned that into try something different. And so that is the secret sauce. Um, the secret sauce is these are the skills that we have found are important for adults to use to better manage uh, relationships, resolve conflicts. And so these are the same skills that young children need to learn. We just can't use the big fancy words. So we have to have something that's quick and easy and to the point. And that's what we have with grab the wheel and what is called the good choice wheel. So the language is key. Language is everything because the language is how we learn. So the language for this is with a young child, when you have a problem, stay cool, which means when your brain is hijacked, you first have to calm down before you can do anything else. So you want to teach your child how to calm down. That might mean taking a break. That might mean sitting alone for a moment. That might mean taking a step outside. Might be picking up a basketball and shooting until you feel a little bit better, right? Um, it might mean just taking a couple breaths if you only have a moment. But when you have a problem, stay cool and make a good choice. Make a good choice means select one of these coping strategies. Uh, if, you if you're able to make a good choice, that is use one of these, it's more likely to lead to a good outcome for you and the other person. It's basically the same language that we use with adults, um, but just modified for use with the young child. So you're going to use what motivates them. If they are struggling with their friend and they want uh, to have a good relationship with this friend, you tell them, if you do these things, you're going to have a better relationship with that friend. If they're getting in trouble in school all the time and they're missing recess and they're sick of it, they just want to play, you tell them, you make choices on this wheel here you're more likely to have a good time at school, a good time at recess, and you're not going to be in trouble as much. So tapping into what motivates the child and then helping them see it's worth it for you if you can learn how to do one of these things. It also shows them that if you act in this way with us, your parents, you're going to be more likely to get good things. You're going to be more likely to get your way, get that, that uh, thing that you want, that present that you asked for if you're using uh, skills that are, are, are from this wheel. And so that, in a nutshell, is the basics of it. Oh, great point. I, I love how you turned the tactics and strategies that were applicable to adults in the language that adults would understand into a playful, fun-filled language and words and a wheel that kids would actually appreciate. I love how you did it, especially for kids, for young, uh, young children who may be going through problems and then you put the complication of a therapy on top of it, it could easily become an additional problem for them. But if you convert that into a playful mechanism, like what you just showed, oh my God, it's, it's so much fun to actually teach them all these things. Is, is, is this, have you seen this really leading to, I'm sure you have, I just want to know, uh, up, this leading to parents now having lesser stigma about opening up with respect to kids' mental health, are potentially parents now adopting these solutions much more or the society in general adopting these much more, plus the schools in general adopting these kinds of techniques much more when you have converted them into real playful solutions for the kids. Is that happening or is that your hope? Is, is, is that what you're working towards? It's, it's happening and as always, we can always be doing better, 
And so it's, it is happening for sure. And there's a lot of great work that's being done. Um, there's been a huge shift in terms of um, the way that we, we look at behavior in children, uh, a shift in a positive way, a shift that also recognizes uh, the role of trauma in, in, in childhood behavior, which um, prior to very recently was largely overlooked. And trauma can come in all shapes, forms, and, and sizes, not just the sort of obvious uh, or apparent ways. And so, um, yeah, there's been a, uh, I think, a larger investment in, um, in how we, we work it with and support uh, children. Um, I can say as far as the results that I've seen and, and as far as stigma, uh, approaching it in this playful way definitely helps a lot, including with the child themselves, that so mm -hmm. much stigma is around that the child themselves feels it. They feel like, well, I don't want to have something be wrong with me, or I don't want to uh, feel like I'm crazy, or I don't want to feel like a problem, right? Um, so going to therapy or um, the idea of working with someone can feel to the child like a punishment. And sometimes parents can actually, uh, unfortunately, make it sound that way. You've yeah. been bad, so you have to go see Brian. It's, it shouldn't be put that way ever, unless you want uh, your child to associate learning with punishment. And that's not what you want. You want them to see this for what it is, which is this is a, a gift. This is an opportunity for you to grow. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, so uh, the positivity, I think, really helps with the stigma. Making it playful really helps with the stigma. It makes it approachable. Same is true for adults. And in, in a way to sort of frame it or brand that, uh, that is why the work that my dad has done uh, and our work with Anderson and Anderson emotional intelligence has been the answer or the secret because emotional intelligence is not something that comes with stigma. It's something that has to do with positive psychology, with growth mindset, and you don't have to be sick to get better. We can start from where you're at and grow, right? It's not a bad thing to come to uh, get help. So emotional intelligence sees it as coaching and sees it as skills, it sees it as behaviors. And so that's the way that we're framing it, right? These are yeah. skills that you can develop and grow from when you're a child all the way into adulthood, right? Always room to grow, grow, grow. And so by framing it that way, you get around a lot of the stigma that has to do with psychotherapy, that has to do with mental health, that's unfortunate, but it's there. Um, we, by training, are able to provide psychotherapy and treat mental health, we also are trained in emotional intelligence. And so we really use that combination to our advantage. Um, that's the one secret, I would say, uh, of all. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it, it should be recognized as a skill and a skills training versus trying to adopt. Absolutely well said. Um, uh, for all of our viewers out there, I just want to remind uh, Brian's dad is George Anderson, who was one of the first uh, leaders on our on our podcast platform. Um, ever since, he has become a great friend of the company. He loves what we do at Direct Chefs in terms of connecting clinicians directly to the employers, solve the, the whole healthcare access to providers problem, healthcare staffing and recruitment problems. In fact, uh, we would love to announce that we may be working together more in terms of making emotional intelligence trainings more available to the clinician network that we have. We'll be doing some some work together, and we are definitely excited uh, for that work, Brian. And thanks to you and your dad uh, for putting that trust in us and continuing to work and be a great partner uh, with us. Absolutely. And um, now to your point, identifying this more as a skills training versus potentially solving a problem when the problem happens, not even branding mental health issues as problems, but you know, recognizing them as solvable challenges. It's all in how you put it. Having said that, is there enough um, work that is being done from a policy perspective in the mental health space, uh, let alone not just the adult space, but now in the kids space where we are recognizing bigger need for mental health or skills training with respect to emotional intelligence. Are you seeing more and more favorable policies that are encouraging this kind of work that are coming up? For example, last time we spoke a lot about with, with George, 
about how potential reimbursement policies have to change if people have to adopt and get more mental health care, how that has to be you know, a whole different scenario where people are more motivated to go seek mental health care. In fact, one of the other leaders that we had on our platform mentioned that in one of the foreign countries, I believe it's Argentina, most people have their therapists. In fact, they brag about my therapist is better than your therapist kind of yeah. thing. So how can, we, how can we get to a situation where therapy becomes such a natural part of life so that overall mental health, which has a huge bearing on physical health as well, is improved. So are you seeing such improvements in policies and protocols that will favor more motivation of, of adoption? Or if you see still, if you do still see some deficiencies there, what would your wish list be in terms of if this were there, you could do more work in this space? Yeah, great question. It, I'm laughing because it's, it's funny that you mentioned Argentina and, and uh, comparing therapists in the beginning, because you're right, it definitely is Argentina. I, I actually uh, have spent some time in Argentina and I have some friends down there uh, who, who uh, are therapists or who work in that space. And um, they actually have the most uh, psychologists per capita in Argentina than any other uh, country. Um, but aside from that, um, it, it's a good example of removing the stigma and people talking about, yo, my therapist, my therapist, you know, um, you know, just casually to each other, you know, in the street. And you may have that sometimes in bigger cities, LA, New York, a, a little bit more than other places, but even still, it still is a major stigma. So um, I think that the, the policy actually goes hand in hand with the stigma because uh, if we treat mental health like a crime and we treat those with mental health challenges like criminals, then it really furthers that message, right? That something is wrong with you if you are struggling with mental health, that you're a problem, um, that you're dangerous, and things of this nature uh, that are false, irresponsible, and so damaging ultimately to everybody, um, you know, to to all of us, uh, to all of the, the, the parents, um, this is not helping anybody. So with regards to policy, something devastating, uh, heartbreaking to me happened just within this last week. That's a good example of, of where we are and, and uh, where we need to get to. And that is uh, in, in uh, Rochester, New York, uh, a nine-year-old uh, black girl was uh, arrested and, and forcibly um, detained and then pepper sprayed uh, by a police officer, nine-year-old girl. And it was, it doesn't matter what it was related to truly, but it was related to her not complying with some demand or ask uh, that the officer uh, had made. And the officer actually said uh, to the child during this uh, altercation, you're really behaving like a child, which to me, I think says it all. Um, that this uh, this little black girl was not uh, allowed to behave like a child. She is a child, and it's time that we, you know, uh, honor children with respecting where they're at. Uh, so responding punitively in the education system is a good place to start. Um, we have schools across this country that have police officers. Uh, embedded within the school. This is a big topic with a lot of different complicated angles, but I'll stick to just this one part. Schools that have police officers uh, in them are more likely to um, have children arrested, um, which makes logical sense, but it doesn't necessarily make the school safer, hmm. but it does, it does make sure that more children will be arrested. When more children are arrested, more children then become involved in the criminal justice system. When they become involved in the criminal justice system, they're more likely to face uh, abuses and other mental health, uh, other things that are detrimental to their mental health. So that nine-year-old girl who was just being a nine-year-old girl now has been traumatized by our educational system. And that trauma produces uh, a lot of things that are damaging to mental health. And it can also produce issues with anger, issues with behavior, uh, behavior and issues with uh, uh, in reacting impulsively, which sometimes can look like aggression or violence. 
And so this is where we have to make a change um, because there are too many young children who are are being treated as criminals for simply being children that are there to grow and learn, including socially and emotionally. So whether it's young children or even adults, um, I believe that police officers uh, should not be responding to calls of somebody who's in mental health distress. Someone like me should be responding to the call of someone in mental health distress. Uh, a therapist, a social worker, someone who's trained in that should be the one responding to a mental health emergency. Too often when a, the police are involved in responding to a mental health emergency, it leads to violence and death. And that's something that's you know also happening uh, every week and also uh, was in the news recently of uh, an individual who was killed um, while actually in a mental health crisis and in need of support. And so um, that's a place to to shift our policy is not treating mental health like a crime, not treating addiction like a crime, and instead treating it as a public health uh, issue and responding to it with care, not with force or or punishment. Uh, That's that's, that's a great point. I think not treating it as a punishment, not treating it as problem but really treating it as a public health issue i think that's that we have to underscore that statement right there with that said brian um one of uh, the physicians that was on our podcast i think this week dr ramso uh, it's a great black physician leader great innovator did mention give us statistics about how disproportionately uh, how, how the statistics shows the disproportionate nature of black clinicians amongst the whole population of clinicians. And it it definitely creates access issues because people, even though you say you have created access and resources for them, if they're not able to get the resources and care from people that they can really associate with, they're potentially not going to get that care. So it is important that there is diversity in the workforce as there is huge diversity in the population seeking for that healthcare as well. So, and we are celebrating Black history. So it just motivates me to ask the question, are there enough resources that are encouraging more and more young Black adults to seek social work, mental health as a profession? Are you seeing that more and more happening? Is that becoming a more and more sought after attractive profession with all the changes and recognition of mental health that's going on. If yes, what else should be happening there? How do you want to see that momentum really grow? If no, what is your message? We have a large network of clinicians out there that are therapists, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners that may have far-reaching wide effects as well. What is your message to the younger generation out there in order to make sure that they're picking up social work, therapy, counseling, as a profession in order to make sure that access issues are solved as well? Great question. Um, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, the, the, the under-representation, um, um, the extremely limited amount of, of black uh, clinicians uh, is huge. And so being a, just a, a black male in this field, I, I am a, a rare, uh, you know, I'm rare. There's not nearly enough of of, of us uh, around. So why is that? Uh, What can be done about it? Um, I think it all starts with with access and opportunity, you know, just like anything else. Um, You know, growing up, if you are unable to see people who look like you doing a certain profession, you're less and less likely to see yourself. Uh, being a part of that profession. Um, I was able to see my parents, right, doing this profession. And that quickly made me from an early age feel like that this was something that I could do too. Um, but that's not the case for, for uh, many black young people out there. Um, you know, I think stigma is a part of it, but, but more than anything, I still think it's, it's uh, opportunity and, and access. And so what does that mean? It means you know, just like we need to expel, uh, expose, uh, you know, black children, black boys, girls and boys to, you know, technology or learning coding 
uh, or other, you know, uh, fields where, uh, uh, you know, we are underrepresented. Uh, this field, you know, is the same. Um, we need to, to, to just provide more learning opportunities to, you know, to learn about psychology, to learn about mental health, to learn about work, to learn about uh, trauma. And, you know, I think, again, um, in order to learn, you first have to be safe. You have to be well taken care of. And so we have to create safer environments. We have to create environments that are not, um, you know, criminalizing uh, young black children um, because if they're busy being treated like the nine-year-old girl in Rochester, they're not going to be able to learn about mental health and all the great uh, career opportunities that, that they could be a part of. Um, so again, it, it starts with how we are caring for these communities, um, what opportunities are, are being afforded to, to them, and how we as, as clinicians who are doing this can take care of one another and try to reach out to, to these communities to create some of these learning opportunities. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, just one final question with regard to that, uh, Brian, and I would be more keen to know how you have you know, adopted to this changing environment. As we all know, the last 12 months has been challenging in terms of having more person-to-person -person interactions or physical interactions, et cetera. A lot of operations have gone digital, virtual, you know, we can call it whatever, but limited physical interactions, especially in the mental health space, where people tend to think it is really important to have you know, more physical interactions, et cetera. And with that not being possible over the last several months, but still you know, providing the care that you actually want to provide to the populations that you serve, how have you personally adopted to the digital virtual environment and how would you recommend others do the same? As such, there is limited access. If that access also is constrained by events like pandemic, then it further reduces. Having said that technology could help, so there is a lot of digital means through which patients could be engaged now. Potential populations that we care for could be engaged in a better way sometimes. So how have you personally adopted uh, to this changing environment, more infusion of technology and do you recommend people do more of that in this space of especially uh, teaching emotional and mental health skills to kids? Is technology still playing a favorable role? Mm -hmm. Really tough question, really important question. You know, uh, there's pros and cons to everything. And, you know, there's two sides to every coin. And, and that's the way that I see this current situation. There are some things that are... Um, um, you know, silver linings to this. There's uh, some things about technology that I think are making some some of my students at, at, at my school uh, more comfortable uh, in, in accessing maybe mental health for the first time. Um, it may be less intimidating to some people than making an appointment and walking into somebody's office in person. So, you know, there are some who this may be benefiting. And we, we have to, you know, include that narrative in there when we think about this. That said, there uh, also are a lot of losses. So for me personally, uh, you know, getting into sort of this business was about being in the room with that person and, and almost feeling their heartbeat, uh, you know, being able to feel their presence uh, to get a sense of where they're at, how they're doing and getting to know them. And so being in a room, seeing someone's body language is, um, you know, the most important diagnostic tool that I have. And so being on a screen, you know, limits that a lot. And it makes you have to um, approach it in a different way. And I think it makes it harder. It, may, it might make it take a little bit longer, I think, to engage and, and connect. So I've faced that challenge personally and, and miss having people uh, in person for that reason. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, we all, we all have to adapt. Um, we have to realize that, uh, you know, this, this parts of this are here to stay. Parts of this could be lessons to, to learn. I think one advantage or one way to, to sort of pivot is looking into making things more on demand. So, you know, we have long had, you know, streaming services, Netflix, you know, Hulu. Um, we have had, you know, online classes and things of that nature. 
Um, but specifically around things like mental health or self-care, um, you know, we've had less as far as that type of education that's on demand. So, you know, access to a therapist um, does not only have to last for one hour um, in, in a discrete session. Um, I think that there's more and more that we could be uploading uh, that has good information of it in it that's engaging to different audiences and making that uh, accessible to people. Um, so that's a place to, to start um, that could kind of leverage this. Um, but there's definitely a lot of damage that's, that's done just from not having the in-person human contact. Yeah. And so mental health-wise, uh, social-emotional development-wise, we're seeing that with kids. And I expect there to be a long-term impact that's going to be really noticeable in young children who have grown up during this period of time and missed out on a full year of school and socializing. Uh, we're going to see kids with uh, struggles with behavior. Uh, we're going to see kids in school um, that may not be as prepared socially and emotionally maturity-wise uh, as, as before, um, simply because they really missed out on a lot during this uh, year of development. On the other hand, we also have an opportunity to be at home with our families. And that's been a huge yeah. positive for so many people that has offset uh, you know, a lot of the, the risks or the damage. So it's, you know, it, it's got uh, pros and cons to it. And I think it's about, you know, trying to leverage those things that are good about it to, to take care of the things that, you know, have been uh, damaging. Absolutely, well said, Brian. And with the hope that the pandemic's constraints and challenges will be behind us pretty soon. I am with the happiness that we have all been able to adopt um, and adapt to the newer technologies and still trying to keep ourselves sane and continue the momentum forward. Now, I would definitely um, encourage all of our audience to go check out uh, grabthewheelkids.com. Brian has been a great guest for us today and we would continue our hope to continue our relationship with Brian. I thoroughly enjoyed this past one hour. And again, I would repeat, strongly encourage all of our audience to go check out grabthewheelkids.com and please let us know if you have questions. Brian, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It has been an absolute pleasure discussing all these aspects with you and learning from you and hopefully sharing this information with thousands out there that potentially could be watching this now or later on. So thank you again for being a great leader in the field that you are in. And thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I can't wait to collaborate more and talk more. And I'm happy to, to come back and do this anytime. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Raj. Thank you. Thank you, Brian Anderson, uh, for the uh, last 16 minutes of golden time. In fact, uh, I love the analogy which you use. Parenting is not like car wash. <laughs> That's like, I mean, we expect instant results. We expect, I mean, parents have huge expectations because 24-7 we are with the kids for past uh, 10 months. It's driving nuts. And I know lots of parents out there who are on the news, who are on BBC, CNN, who had left their jobs uh, just for homeschooling their own children. Um, uh, could you give us uh, like a few examples before we end this session? What are the strong words which needs to be used in the wheel which you mentioned? Because... For us, strong words is always threatening the child, cursing the child, saying, I'm going to, uh, I'm scaring the child to do something. But what strong words would you recommend? Yeah, so the strong words is, a, is the skill related to assertiveness. And assertiveness is not the same as aggressiveness. Assertiveness is being confident, being direct in asking for what you want or need but not doing it in a way that's intimidating the other person, insulting the other person, um, you know, or harming the other person. So you certainly want to be able to ask your, your child to do something. You certainly want to uh, set limits and boundaries on what is allowed and what is not. Um, but are you doing it in a way that's healthy? If you're doing it in a way that's healthy and you're asking your child in a way that's healthy to do this or that, that's that type of modeling. So for adults, we call it assertiveness. For the child, we call it strong words. So for the child, you wanna ask your child, if you want something rather than yelling and screaming at me, you need to use your strong words and ask me nicely. That means ask confidently, ask with eye contact, right? If you ask with a smile on your face, even better. 
If you're not happy and you're angry, that's fine too. You can be upset in your voice and in your face, but don't insult, right, hit, or harm another person. You can say, I'm mad at you, and here's what I need from you. That's okay. That's allowed. That's a good thing, right? But to insult, intimidate, or try to manipulate, that's not good. So as far as for parents to children, you don't want to use those type of desperate tactics because your child is going to then see that that's the only way to get things done. And that's not what we actually want. So rather than the threat, instead, search for the opportunity. Search high and low, near and far for what motivates your child and figure out as many ways to set those things up as possible rewards. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the biggest reward for your child is you, your own personal time and presence in their life. And when I say presence in their life, that means no phone, no TV, no looking at your watch. It means even if it's for five or 10 minutes, if that five or 10 minutes is just you and the child, that's worth more than gold. So to use that as a, as a reinforcer and instead of the threat, it's I need you to do this. And then it's also they say catch them when they're being good, meaning reward your child when they do something well. Um, you can also catch them for no reason at all and let them know that, that your love is unconditional, uh, that you're going to find opportunities to, to do things that they like. And if they see that good things can be coming to them periodically when they least expect it, that is a, is a big time reinforcement schedule, right? It's like uh, people play the slot machine. You never know when you're going to win. Uh, and then they play forever. Same thing with the child. You want the child to know that sometimes when you do good things, you might get something really cool. And sometimes just when you're hanging out doing nothing, you might get something really special as well. It's going to motivate them to, you know, continue to, to behave in a sense. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brian Anderson, for the great insights. Again, uh, for all the viewers, if you're watching the replay, uh, please do like, comment and share uh, the content which you had uh, watched. And listen to this on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts also. Thank you, Vamshi. Uh, pandemic parenting is a universal deep ocean. Um, this training or probably this workshop or this session can also go for a full day training. But log on to grabthewheels.com, as Vamshi said. And we'll see you in the next episode of Direct Shift Stories. Until then, uh, this is Raj. I'll see you soon. Thank you all. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Vamshi. Thank, Thank you. you all.